Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan and today I'm speaking with Thad Layton. Arnold Palmer created Arnold Palmer Course Design along with partner Ed C. in 1972. Over the next 35 years, the company they developed grew into one of the largest golf architectural firms in the world. Powered by the name and charisma of its founder, Palmer Course Design was a construction machine, a thrumming production house with, at any given time, 30-plus projects on the board in various stages of development, and over two dozen employees and design associates flying around the world to service their far-flung clientele. Working primarily in the field of residential and resort development, Palmer Design was a global brand cranking out products that sold homes and were highly relatable for the rank-and-file player. If few of the company's courses impressed architectural critics or were perceived as designs that would stand the test of time, it didn't matter. Business was booming, and the list of investors eager to attach the Palmer name to their project was deep. Well, nothing good lasts, and in the mid-aughts, time in the sagging golf economy caught up to the firm. Palmer Course Design had to recalibrate, and it now, especially after the passing of Mr. Palmer in 2016, looks little like the giant it did in its Mad Men days. Thad Layton, who runs the company along with architect Brandon Johnson, has overseen a metamorphosis at Arnold Palmer Course Design, transforming it into a more slender, efficient, and intuitive design firm. A modus operandi once defined by impersonal, large-scale industrialism has become a more boutique design-build operation with a focus on detail. Layton now spends weeks on site, a level of immersion unimaginable two decades ago, and hires independent shapers like Brett Hochstein, Jeff Stein, and Corn Crenshaw Bunker Specialist Jeff Bradley to help shape features. The result is that Palmer courses today are dramatically more artisan and handcrafted, and look nothing like the bulk of the pro forma courses of the company's past. This almost unheard of about face is an interesting and invigorating turn for one of the game's most legendary corporations. Layton's current designs and renovations, in fact, look right at home next to the best and better publicized architecture of the 2010s. This talk took place on October 10, as Hurricane Michael was nearing touchdown in Florida's panhandle. Thad and I talk about some of his specific work, the new era of Palmer design, where the company is headed, and what it will take for their architecture to be viewed in a fresh light. So enjoy the conversation as we get the lowdown from Thad Layton. Hey, are you getting any of that weather from this hurricane? You know, it's uh, pretty calm here. We're getting, uh, you can see the cloud patterns that uh, they're definitely like feeder bands. They're getting pulled into the center of that hurricane, but uh, we're just getting a little bit of rain. It looks like you guys may get it worse than us, though, um, the next couple days. Yeah, I think those bands are going to come sweeping up through Georgia. Every time a, a hurricane comes through the Gulf like this, it seems to hit Georgia and Atlanta area a lot harder than the ones that come in off the Atlantic. Yeah, the ones coming out of the Gulf really pack a punch for some reason. I think it's all that warm water. Yeah, it must be. Uh, <laughs> they all seem to be bad, you know, these days. Yeah, they do. Yeah, this one came out of nowhere. It did. It did. It was just kind of hovering down there uh, south of, of the Caribbean islands, and all of a sudden it got angry and turned north. It did. Have you ever been to one of the old Palmer Course's Lost Key outside of Pensacola in Perdido Key? I have, yeah. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, I have. And it's a really, it's a, <laughs> I, 
what made me think of that is the hurricane came through uh, probably 10 or more years ago and and went right through that area and, and almost kind of detreed the entire property it was a really interesting course before the hurricane came it was very dense kind of a little too narrow but very you know you really felt like you're playing in the woods and you're very everything was very shrouded it was very mysterious and then the hurricane came through and wiped it out and almost made it better by opening up the vistas and kind of opening up the edges of the course yeah, that's where my old boss, Ed C., came up with this infamous line when he was walking uh, the center lines with the architect on the project, a guy named Harrison Minshew. Mm-hmm. He said, Harrison, I don't think you got this thing cleared wide enough. I don't think Robin Hood could play this thing with a crossbow. <laughs> it was so narrow. There were a couple green. I mean, it was. It made Harbor Town look spacious in a few places. I remember when I played it, it was like the 10th and 11th hole. Like You wanted to almost hit putter off the tee because you didn't even feel like you get an iron in play yeah that's saying something if it's tighter in harbor town <laughs> yeah right so let me ask you where where have you been traveling lately and you know how, how much time do you spend on the road versus back at home that's a good question you know it comes in fits and starts but uh, this year has been particularly busy it just had about five projects I've been covering. Uh, I've been out to Ventura County, California, working on Satikoy Country Club. Uh, also been in the mountains of western North Carolina. We're doing uh, something called Palmer Practice Park, hmm. and that is in uh, kind of the Asheville area. Is and that a Balsam Mountain? That's, that's correct. Yeah. And we're also working with the village at Penn State doing a, a – something called Palmer Park, which is uh, a, a smaller product, if you will, a golf product. What we're, what we're trying to do is really give the a golf landscape feel to a really small space. And in this case, the client was an assisted living community. So they can walk right out of their back door and onto a 15,000 square foot synthetic putting green with some really interesting contours on it. But there's also we also designed the rest of this uh, two-acre space um, to complement the putting green. So we've got bocce ball courts, an active uh, lawn, like to do yoga on. Uh, there's also uh, a, a trellis feature, some uh, a fountain, and some sitting areas, and, and all of its landscape to a high level of detail. So it's, you know, as as the business has changed, as the golf business has. Uh, contracted we've looked for other ways to continue to add golf and that's that's one of them so that project is in uh, state college pennsylvania also been working here at bay hill working on a new short game facility that consists of four target greens seven bunkers and basically any shot you can hit inside of about 120 yards uh, we've tried to replicate on this facility and we're also been in Uruguay. We're we're gonna break ground on a on the next nine holes of an eighteen hole project um, that we completed. Uh, we did nine holes down there about five years mm-hmm. ago. So they're Las they're ready for, That's that's correct. So we're going to uh, do the next installment. Give them a full eighteen hole golf course. That'll start in March of next year. So I had some pre planning work, uh, finalizing the routing down there uh, about a month ago. All right, so that's a that's a pretty healthy itinerary. You know, I have this dream when you're talking about Palmer Park, 
that's a, such a great idea. The, the concept of being able to just walk out of some door, whether it's an assisted living place or, or your apartment or a townhome in the middle of a city, and just walk out to some sort of green space that incorporates golf. It could just be a giant, like, you, like you're doing there, a, a giant putting green. You know, and so instead of just having a public park where people go and, you know, play, there's a playground, you could also incorporate golf in that. We're always talking about, like, how do you how do you engage people in golf? How do you get people excited or exposed to it? What better way than to, than to do small-scale golf, putting, chipping, whatever projects like that right in the middle of a town? There's no reason that has to be confined to just a small development. It could be, you know, it's like the cradle at Pinehurst. If that were in the middle of a of a larger city like downtown Chicago, you know, something like that, man, think about, think of the exposure that, that, that would give golf. That's such a great idea to incorporate, you know, small scale golf into an urban environment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's something about that, you know, something distinctive about those golf landscapes, whether you walk off the back porch of Oakmont country club or, you know, Shinnecock or just, just name any of these great golf courses. Um, it, it's this transformative experience. It kind of takes you to this place in your mind. And, and again, it's, it's a very distinctive feel, um, all these places that I'm talking about. So that's kind of what we're trying to, the feeling we're trying to replicate uh, with, with this particular product or, uh, or design, if you will. Um, and you know, we all get old, we're all going to be old one day. Um, and you know, I've been playing this game for 30 years and I love it and I hope I'm, I'm able to continue to play it. Um, but if there's ever a time where, um, I, I would need to you know, stay in a place like that, it would be great to have golf available uh, just to be able to walk out my back door and, <laughs> and, and putter around at the game I love. Yeah, I think the more we see ideas like that incorporated and built out, the, maybe the more momentum we can get to, for other municipalities or other developments, whatever, to kind of look toward golf as a gathering space, as a community activity. I know I have two small children, they're seven and nine, and they're, they're almost outgrowing the park phase right now, but they still like to go to a good playground. And I just think if there was a big, interesting Himalaya style putting green, whether it's synthetic, it'd probably have to be synthetic, but whether or not it wasn't, and they saw people over there putting, I guarantee they'd be interested in grabbing putters and going over there and knocking it around, seeing what that was all about. Yeah. My kids are the same, Derek. I, I brought them out over, over the weekend. We just had the grand opening for the practice facility at Bay Hill and they had some different stations set up where they could try, you know, a bump and run or a lob shot or a sand shot with all these different features on the, on the short game practice area. And they really don't like golf uh, to my chagrin, but uh, they yeah, really <laughs> love that this experience. And it was, it was, you know, a short amount of time. Um, and it was something that was doable for him you know shots inside of 30 yards it wasn't intimidating as as a big 18 hole golf course experience could be so you know after that they were like hey let's i want to go back i want to do it again so that's instead of trying to force our kids to do something we want them to do uh maybe take taking them out on a on a the double black diamond equivalent uh on a ski slope of, of an 18 hole golf course like right. we have here at Bay Hill, just being able to take them out on something smaller just to give them a taste of, of what it's like. And, uh, yeah, they really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's really all about exposure, you know, just to whatever it takes to get 
uh, somebody with a club in their hands, whether it's a, an eight year old or a, you know, a 38 year old person. And I think that's kind of what, what we all n- need to try to try to put our focus into is just exposure more than any other kind of like program to get, you know, to fix golf. It's just really about getting people to get a club in their hands on grass for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that and top golf are, we're going to see more and more of those facilities and they'll become feeders to the larger 18 hole golf experience and sustain clubs that I think everybody's kind of worried about what's the future of golf. I I think if we continue to invest in those two things um, that I, that I just mentioned, we'll, uh, and top golf is very successful. Um, yeah. I, I don't think we, you know, that's kind of uh, self-sustaining on its own. But the research is already showing that it's introducing golf to a whole segment that wouldn't have picked up a club otherwise. So I, I'm bullish on the future of, of golf, um, primarily for uh, for that reason alone. So I I've never been to Top Golf. I've seen it. I, I know what it is. I've seen it on TV, but. I guess the question is, and you may know this because you're closer to it. Is there a crossover? Do people who go to Top Golf create a curiosity? Does that create a curiosity so that they will actually go to a real golf course, or is that just creating more Top Golf's facilities around the country? Yeah, the the data I've seen I've seen so far is showing that it's creating. Uh, golfers it's converting that you know people that would have never picked up a club would have never had the exposure they get invited to a top golf they're like wow this is this is fun and you know not necessarily all top golfers will become core golfers but there is data that's showing that that there is a crossover that people that are joining courses or going to play golf on a real course for the first time had their first exposure or got hooked on the game at a top golf facility that's encouraging then i may yeah, have to I, I have to modify my views on top golf <laughs> i haven't been that excited about it or yeah, i haven't I, been I, as positive about it I, I was skeptical as well i thought that bit uh you know may, may cheapen what we consider to to be um the the true game of golf but uh, until I went myself, you know, I went and took my kids and saw how much they enjoyed it and how that led to them asking about going out and playing, playing here at Bay Hill because it, that's really that up until playing Top Golf that really wasn't a desire of theirs to come out and and do the real thing here at Bay Hill, which for me just just kills me. Right? It's like when I when I grew up, I didn't have access to a a golf course this nice. I played at a local muni it was you know ten dollars to go play all the golf you wanted with a pool cart and uh, right and i had had friends in my neighborhood they were members of the local country club i never had that privilege but from time to time because i was on the high school golf team i got to go out and play that and it was just like wow this is this is something i want to aspire to one day to be able to enjoy a golf course like this maintained designed to this level of quality and maintained to a high standard but yet you know i I have this available for my kids now through my through working for arnold palmer design company and uh, they they just don't have a whole lot of interest in it at least until recently but uh but yeah it's uh it's it's an interesting yeah um what you just said is is an interesting uh kind of gate it makes you understand the gateway so i know that you and other architects and a lot of people in the, in the industry would love to promote this idea 
of how we should could spend less on construction. We could spend less across the board on everything that we do in golf, on maintenance. We'd love to see the ground get a little firmer, a little drier, uh, everything a little less lush. And it all comes back to money. But what you just said touches on something that almost everybody, American, almost every American at least, who gets into the game experiences. And that's that one time when you go to that golf course that's on another level than the place that you play. I'm like you. I grew up on a. I grew up on the city course. And there was one country club in our town. And every time I got to play over there, which wasn't often, I mean, it was like stepping into Shangri-La. It was a different world. And you, mm. it's especially when you're young and you don't have a, an exposure to a wide variety of golf courses and you don't appreciate different styles of play, that's irresistible. Like, that's what you want. That's what you think great golf is. So that's a difficult hurdle for the industry to overcome because we're still in that mindset where we want that. We want that lush grass. We want all that texture. We want that color. We want the privacy. We want all the beauty of the surrounds that you get when you play in a golf course that's better than the one that you're playing right now. So it's a tough position to be in to kind of have to work backwards off that and change people's minds for the health of the game. Yeah, that's certainly a hurdle. I think we're doing a better job of it, redefining what makes a, a top shelf golf experience. And when you have courses like Pinehurst Number Two and how they roll that thing back to what it might have looked like uh, during Donald Ross's time, um, and how that is a, you know, it's it's a lower maintenance golf course, lower inputs, if you will, on the irrigation side, um, and and having the USGA embrace that um you know during one of their u.s opens i think that's moving things in the right direction um but then then augusta rolls around every april and it kind of redefines that experience so yeah right. so, it's a big setback <laughs> well what can we i do mean about that well i, I think we, <laughs> we we need to really you know celebrate the diversity of golf courses uh, every golf course is different i think that's what makes the sport so spe- special right i mean um, no two golf courses are the same. So that's, you know, that's one of my pet peeves is when people just rally around a certain style of golf course um, and, and they just pan everything else. It's like, well, you can't really appreciate the ruggedness of a Pinehurst without being able to offset and say, well, there's an Augusta National or there's there's a Beth Page Black or there's a Pebble Beach. It's just like you you. If you're in this game long enough, you learn to appreciate each style of golf course. So, um, you know, if all 15,000 golf courses in the U.S. looked exactly like Bandon Dunes, uh, we, w- we wouldn't even be talking about it, right? I mean, there would be nothing to debate in the realm of golf course architecture. So I think it's healthy. And again, that's what drew me into the game is that all these courses were different. And required different shots um, mm-hmm. and, ins- and inspired you in different ways. So I think that's something to be celebrated. But I think as an industry, we could probably continue to do a better job about talking about sustainability and what are some areas where we can spend less um, on things that don't matter on the golf course, like six different heights of cut <laughs> and just have two simple cuts on the golf course. Just have, have really healthy greens rolling out of 10 with some interesting contours have some wide fairways uh, and and don't get into you know diamond patterns and collars and <laughs> yeah. step cuts and right uh, all these kind of different things that really at the end of the day is it worth that investment just I, I one would, one fairway cut 
wall to wall. I mean, it would be so good for the for every. I think I don't see a downside to it unless you're trying to host a tour event. Otherwise, why not? Yeah, I suppose that's one good thing you could say about Augusta's. It's just it's pretty much all the same height. So that's one thing you could take from Augusta that would actually cost you less as a club. Or it um, used to be anyway. Yeah, well, yeah, it used to be, but it's it's pretty, you know, relative to you know maybe like an Oakmont where they mm-hmm. have all kinds of different cuts. Augusta's errs on the side of simplicity in a lot of ways. So uh, I think there's some things you could probably take. From I, I keep saying Augusta, but uh, you could take from that particular golf course and uh, and actually save some money on the maintenance side, um, and and contribute to a more interesting, better golf experience. It's going back to the idea of appreciating diversity in golf courses, do you think it's really a matter of to truly appreciate the range of golf courses, especially that we have in the United States? of looking at every golf course and understanding that there's an ideal for that particular golf course in that particular indigenous setting, whether it's a parkland course or a prairie course. And you have to find ways as the superintendent or the architect to maximize that environment. So if you're in the trees, there's a way to make the trees work for you. You know, if you're a mountain golf course and you're surrounded by pines, there's an optimal way to present that design in that golf course. And the same in the, if you're in the prairies or the, you know, the, the Midwest somewhere where there's not a lot of trees, etc. and you can go down the line, but there's an optimum way to present and define and design each golf course. And then maybe the way, what the problem that we get into sometimes is we're not letting the golf course be what it's meant to be we try to manipulate it too much and make it into something that the neighbor club down the street is trying to achieve does that make any sense is that kind of as an architect do you look at it like that it's really trying to just optimize the setting of the golf course and and working with what you have absolutely i think if you um look at all of the really successful golf courses that's exactly the approach that they've taken the architect went to the site and tried to figure out what the strengths and weaknesses of that particular site were, what, what were the natural features, routed the golf course in a way that, you know, if I was going to walk this site, what were the parts of the site that are that I would want you to see and try to take that golfer on this experiential journey and embrace those quirky natural features on that site, try to incorporate them in a meaningful strategic way and really embrace whatever that particular climate is giving you on the turf side as well. Use bunkers to kind of camouflage the golf course and blend it into the natural environment. And I think you you start to see a pattern emerge with all of these really great golf courses that have uh, they were either forced down that road because they don't have the resources we have today with all the yellow steel and money to move dirt, where they were just you know building what they could with mules and pans. Or this modern minimalist movement today where they, you know what, I'm going to go out and take this approach. But if I really need to move a, a ass load of dirt, I'm going to take advantage of this technology and create this believable natural feature and, uh, and really build something that is in context and, and natural and believable um, and create a worthwhile golf experience. So, yeah, it's, I think it's all about context, really being aware of, of, of your surroundings, uh, of, of that particular golf course, uh, 
and how you can, you know, bring that into play on, on, on the golf side. Uh, we worked with a gentleman named Mark Parston, who was responsible for Kings Barnes and also uh, the first course at Castle Stewart. Castle Stewart, yeah. Yeah, and he was talking about, you know, we create, you know, my vision is to create golf courses that people will get on a plane to come see. And in order to be able to do that, you've got to create something that is different from anything that they've got in their backyard. And you create these uh, anchors around the site. You know, for Castle Stewart, there was a particular lighthouse that was off in the distance that he wanted the golfers to, you know, to anchor their experience as they were playing the course. There was a bridge out to the north, you know, across the bay, uh, and, and there was a, there were a couple of walls that st- old stone walls that had uh, that separated the property over time. And he want, he took all of these natural features and he said, "All right, this is what people are going to remember after they play the golf course. They're going to go home and they're going to be able to remember." their golf experience and they're going to want to come back. So I think that also speaks to this idea of context. And he also talked about if you parachute into any um, great top 100 golf course, you're, you're going to know where you are almost immediately because of that context, whether it's like the tall pines of Augusta or the windswept dunes of Shinnecock Hills. And obviously the, uh, the cliffside setting of Pebble Beach is pretty iconic as well, and I, I keep mentioning all these great courses. I probably need to to uh, probably talk about something that's a little bit less mainstream than those. But uh, I think if you look at any top 100 list of golf courses, they all defer to their sites and pay mm-hmm. respect to it. Yeah, I know that at um, Kingsbarn, he and Mark Parson and and Kyle Phillips talked about aspect. They use that term basically is what does the golfer see what is it what are you exposing the golfer what vision are you exposing the golfer to on this particular hole or this particular Mm -hmm. place what what project were you speaking to him about well we are talking about doing a second golf course at castle stewart the arnold palmer tribute course and it is adjacent to the first course that he and gil hans designed together so this, I don't know if you've been there or played the golf course. No. But uh, there, there's like 500-year-old castle, Castle Stewart. It's, uh, it's probably seen a picture of the fourth hole. It's par three, and the castle's framed in the background. Well, well our site is situated around that castle. And uh, we, we were out there with Mark uh, you know, talking about the job, uh, routing the golf course as it got uh, more and more real. Um, and came up with you know with a routing that uh, we both liked. Also working with Brandon Johnson, uh, who's who's on our team, and uh, so that's that's a project that we haven't broken ground yet on, um, but that's something that we hope to uh, start next year. So you're optimistic that it, it'll get started at some point. Yeah, we're still optimistic. I mean, as long as the economy continues to improve uh, and investment continues to happen, this that area in Scotland um, is uh, the Highlands is just so beautiful. But there's there's some really great golf courses there already. Um, obviously, Roll Dornick and then Nairn. Bill Core is going to do Cool Links, mm-hmm. which is not too far away. Then, then of course Castle Stewart to be able to have two you know, hopefully world top 100 golf courses 
within five minutes of the Inverness airport and then also talking about doing a 72-room dormy lodge. It'll be a great hub to go play all of those other golf courses. Uh, so it's, I think it's a great opportunity. So anybody's listening out there that might be interested in uh, being a part of the project or investing in it in some way. Um, this, this Call look- Thad. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he'll, he'll pick up. I know. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Yeah, I mean, we're, it's, you know, in, in the 20 years that I've worked here, this is the most exciting project that uh, we've been involved in so far and really looking forward to breaking ground on it. Uh, and we'll use the same approach that Mark and his team used on the first one with Gil. We'll be over there buying our own equipment, building the golf course ourselves, and uh, it'll be a true design build project. You know, another reason to to get to Northern Scotland for sure. That will definitely cement it. If if there's even one more course, and that in Cool Links and Brora is up there. So, um, oh yeah, Brora, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you're a Southern guy. You grew up in the South, right? And you mentioned how it cut, you were a little chagrined that your kids uh, haven't really got the golf bug yet. When did you get it? You said you you know you grew up on a municipal course and you played in high school. But what are your memories of golf as a young guy? Yeah, I remember my dad taking me out to a place called Traymark, which was the local muni there in Gulfport, Mississippi. It was routed around a water treatment plant. So if if the wind was uh, kind of blowing the wrong way on a particular day, it uh, it was uh, a <laughs> there 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 was a there was an odor there that you couldn't quite shake. But uh, aside from <laughs> aside from that, I mean, it was where I learned how to play the game. I uh, learned to to love it. You know, absolutely fell in love with the game. Um, but backing up a little bit, I mean, I guess the uh, at least initially, my dad would take me out to to the golf course, and I, I would I would get a little bored with it. I would, uh, you know, I would I was more interested in driving the golf cart. But it wasn't until that's I, pretty I went, common. Yeah, <laughs> especially for a you know eleven or twelve. Oh, that's year old the best. Kid. That's the best part of golf at that age. Absolutely. But uh, I went. I went to Tennessee to see my grandfather, and for whatever reason, he was uh, he was going to go play golf. Took me along, and uh, we walked up and down the hills of this really steep golf course. And I, that was when I fell in love with it. And I think part of it was like, wow, this this golf course is so much different than the one back home that was flat. Uh, it provided a lot of different looks and challenges, and and maybe I was just in a good mood that day. But that was that was that moment that crystallizing moment that it was like, man, I, I, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I came back home. I had a hand-me-down set of clubs that my grandfather had given me. And uh, my dad supported my new habit. He would take me to all the golf courses uh, within an hour or two drive of our house. And I was always interested in seeing um, you know, what uh, you know, a, a new golf course, especially if something had new had showed up i wanted to go see see a new course and play it uh, i ended up uh not making my high school golf team the you know, my ninth grade year my first time around but uh that was, that was a blessing in disguise i got I, I just redoubled my efforts and practiced every day and got really good and easily made it the next year and uh started to play competitively uh played well enough to get a a scholarship to a, a small school in Alabama, the University of Mobile. But 
I, always in the back of my mind, I, I was interested in golf course architecture. I picked up a copy of Doak's Anatomy of a Golf Course and really understood, uh, started to understand that this whole thing of golf course design was real, that it was a profession that people made a living designing these cool outdoor spaces, these playing fields that I enjoyed so much. So that was really uh, kind of this if not my first love, at least uh, something equal to playing golf. If you know, if I couldn't make a living playing it, uh, maybe I could design golf courses, or better yet, maybe I could do both. So that was that was the did genesis. You, did you know of, anybody think, else at that time who was had that same interest as you did? I did not. I was pretty much on my own when it came to trying to find out about it. And you know, unlike today, back then. Um, there, there weren't a lot of resources. Uh, mm-hmm. Now you can just go online, uh, Google anything you want to, or go on Golf Club Atlas and get engaged in some pretty, pretty intellectual, some intellectual debate on the on the topic. But back then, it was uh, either Golf Digest that might have an architecture piece from time to time, or or Golf Magazine, or uh, or just uh, you know the anatomy of a golf course, or any other book that you could pick up on the subject, but it, it wasn't a whole lot back then. So, how did you go about navigating your way into the profession? Well, I, I found out that you needed to get a degree in landscape architecture, so that was something I set my sights on pretty early. I ended up going to uh, after one semester at the University of Mobile. There was a golf course that kept threatening to start in Bay St. Louis called the Bridges at Casino Magic. Mm -hmm. And it was an Arnold Palmer golf course. And my dad was in the concrete business, so he had contacts with a lot of the contractors uh, around the area that were going to do some of that work out there. So uh, he called and let me know, like, hey, this golf course is about to break ground. I don't know if you want to be involved in it. Uh, so I jumped at the chance. I left University of Mobile after one semester. It was it was fun, but it, I I knew that uh, my playing career was was probably uh, not something that I was going to be able to depend. We on. all reach that point sooner or later. <laughs> right, <laughs> Most I of think, us really soon, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, so yeah, I, I figured that out after about a semester in college, uh, seeing some other really good players. But also have, you know, having that passion that really never went away for golf course architecture and design. So I was able to move back home, go to junior college. I played on their golf team. But the main thing is I was on staff on the construction crew from beginning to end on a golf course. And it took about 18 months from the initial clearing phase until the last sprig of grass went down. And so that was really where I cut my teeth on golf course design and construction and learned about it from the ground up. Gave me a an appreciation for it on a level I, I didn't even uh, realize was possible. So after after that experience, you know, I, I met the guys at Palmer, which was which gave me some great contacts, and then I transferred to Mississippi State and pursued my degree in landscape architecture. Mm-hmm. So at that time, this is, and I think this is like the mid to late 1990s. That's correct. That would yeah. have been 95. Where would you say when you started working on uh, the Palmer course, that where would you say your architectural IQ was 
at that point in time. And did you did you have an understanding of the Palmer Design Company's status or standing in the business? Yeah, it's you know it's an interesting story. Before I even started um, working for Mr. Palmer, I even met him. Uh, I, I picked up an issue of Golf Magazine, and it, it was a list of a hundred things that every true golfer must do. And number one was shake Arnold Palmer's hand, you know, and other things <laughs> on there like play Augusta, do this, do that. I was like, wow, shake Arnold Palmer's hand. Like I'm out. I'll never meet him. <laughs> that was probably so, the, one of the first things you got checked off the list. Yeah, it was actually. So, uh, there, there, at uh, the bridges you know, on the construction crew, he came out on one of his site visits and I got to meet him. So that was a, that was a really cool experience. Yeah, Pete, you know, Peter Kessler, who I'm sure you know or have heard of, he says, yes. he uh, compares, I love this, he compares shaking Arnold Palmer's hands to something. He says his fingers were like bananas, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because Arnold Palmer was like known for his, just his, his, obviously like, you know, his strength and virility. And there's another, there's another great story about, I, he traveled to, you've probably heard this one, I'm sure as well. He was in South Africa. And Gary Player was taking him along, uh, showing him the sights and, and everything around South Africa, showing off the country. And they went into some, I think it was a gold mine, and they took visitors there, and they had these giant pieces of gold or ink knots or something around, and they were really heavy, and you know people could, couldn't pick them up. And <laughs> Player says Palmer went over and just like took one hand and just like lifted it up with one hand, and he'd never <laughs> seen anybody do that before. Yeah, I've heard that. In story. all the years that he's taken people there, <laughs> not not hard to believe at all. He was uh, he was a strong guy, and I, I just remember, you know, here at the club, um, you know, some people would walk up to him and offer him to buy him a drink, and his hand was so large that he could actually cup an entire you know glass of kettle wine in his hand, and you couldn't see it. <laughs> he's like, "No, I'm good. I've, I've, yeah, I've got a drink." Yeah, so you couldn't you. see this, but I've already got two here. Yeah. So, so you shook his hand. That must have been uh, a pretty substantial memory. It, it was. Um, it's like, wow, this this is a guy that's won ninety two golf tournaments, seven majors. He's designing a golf course, and he took the time to look me in the eye, shake my hand, say it was nice to meet you, and I appreciate the work that you're doing on my golf course. And you know that created this instant loyalty that persists to this day, long after he's gone. Um, and I've met so many people just traveling with him and, and, and get to witness kind of those same moments that other people have meeting him for the first time and how he just makes people feel so special, like they're the only ones in the room. He remembers their name. Um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, it's like I, I learned so much more from Arnold Palmer about how to treat people than I did about golf course design. Even though I learned a lot about golf course design, it was like he was, it was just uh, an, an inspiration to watch how he interacted with people and and give people time when he, when he really didn't have to, he, but it, uh, but he did anyway, and it mm-hmm. and he created a lot of lot of loyal loyalty along the way. So, uh, so you went to Mississippi State. I'm curious. I just thought of this. Um, Rob Collins went there too, as well. Did you cross over, or were you a little before his time there? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so when, when I was at State, Rob was not there, but I did come back later uh, to speak at uh, to the landscape architecture class, and I met Rob uh, 
when, when I was there. I think it was four years later, three or four years later. But I remember how tall he was. Like, man, this guy's massive. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, I had a good conversation. It's good to have a feature like that that stands out if people remember Yeah, you. definitely, definitely. But uh, I remember having a good conversation with Rob and that is that, that he asked some really good questions. Um, and then, you know, later to to see his project there at Sweetens Cove be a resounding success and so happy for him and the, the attention that they've been able to get on a nine-hole golf course that's technically in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, he's done done quite well well for himself, so I'm really happy for him. And I, actually, we've gotten to work with him on a project. Uh, we were working down in Naples last year, and uh, I called – We've been looking for a way to transition from a you know this process where we design a whole ream of plans and hand them off to a contractor and show up periodically to observe construction. You know, I talk about this design build model, and we're not 100% there yet. But in the case of um, the project down at Naples Lakes Country Club, it was about a three million dollar renovation, and I called Tad King up and and Rob and talk to them, see if they would be interested in coming down and you know, working with a larger golf course, course contractor, but having Rob and Tad be in charge of the finish work on the greens and doing the bunkers, you know, basically being the last ones to touch the golf course. So they were open to that and came down and worked with us for four months and put that together and just really pleased uh, with, with how the product turned out. Rob did some great bunkers down there and Tad helped us you know put those finishing touches on the greens so it was it was cool to to work with them on on that project and bring them into the fold yes yeah, kind of coming full circle in a way you know to go from being a, a speaker at an event when he's in college to working side by side with them and there could be some future projects as well i don't know yeah i ho- hope we get the chance to work again work with them uh, uh, together again when I when I first got into golf writing, it was, I had just moved to Florida around the year 2000, and at that time the Arnold Palmer Design Company looked a lot different than it does today. You know, we we talked about, you know, Palmer was obviously there, and Ed C was there, and and you had a, like a layer of associates like Eric Larson and Vicky Martz and Harrison Minshew, and I'm probably missing some people, and. This kind of ties back into the question of like when you first started doing your internship with them in Mississippi, were you aware of, of the way the company was was structured at that time when you kind of had this hierarchical system and, you know, the, the everything kind of filtered down through paperwork as you as you referenced? Were you aware of that? You know, was that kind of the way that you thought that golf operations and golf construction was going to work? Because what you've done and Brandon have done now really over the last few years as you just mentioned, is really try to move the company more toward the design build mode where you go out and instead of having an associate and then people under the associate and then the construction company and, and everything else that is attenuated to that to probably taking a project and then figuring out how to assemble a team of maybe independent contractors to come in and help you d- design it. So I guess maybe you could, if you just talk about your first impressions of working it with and at Palmer Design and your thought process on taking it where you you're trying to take it now. Okay. If that's if if I just loaded you up there, if you can can you carry all that weight? Sorry about that. No, it's quite all right. So yeah, when I started out, I mean, it, this was my first job on a golf course construction crew. So I really had nothing else to compare it to. So 
you know, it, it was it was really hard to say, well, this is the right way or this is the wrong way to do it. I, I know that, you know, they came in every two weeks or so and it would be a, a one day site visit. And, you know, if I'm honest, I would probably say, well, you know, that's the way it's supposed to be done. These guys are obviously designing golf courses all around the world. They can't be here every day so they've got a pretty detailed set of plans and they've got their own plane you know they had we had we had our own jet mr palmer had our had his own jet back then so they had two two jet planes that kind of meet (laughs) each other at all these different projects and you know at the height of the business there were 16 grand openings or probably 25 golf courses under construction so you know, it's unbelievable. But, yeah, it was it was crazy. Really looking back, just absolute bananas. But um, but yeah, I mean, at, at the time, it, I, I, being a impressionable nineteen year old, I was like, wow, this must be the way to do it. Um, it's also got to be pretty lucrative, right? So this they've take taken the business of golf course architecture and scaled it. And, you know, maybe this is the way of the future. Maybe this is the way to do it. And, and I hadn't been exposed to a lot of the courses that are, you know, those golden age courses that people love to talk about. You know, up, up until that point in my life, um, you know, that the best golf course I'd seen um, was probably a Palmer design that was in South Alabama around uh, around Mobile called Craft Farms. Yeah, so, Craft Farms. I've been there. Yeah, so to me that was that was the high water mark. That was like, wow, you know, to be able to work with a company that's designed one of the best courses I'd played up to that point. That was, you know, that was that was pretty cool. So I, I don't suppose I was at that point in my career where I would have really questioned it, but I probably had some inkling that there were there were other ways to do it than. Than this particular project, but you know, again, and, and that uh, being 19 and being grateful to be there on this project and really enjoying the process, um, I, I doubt I questioned it that much. But turning the corner, you know, 20 years later and seeing how the industry has contracted, you know, when I started, I was the 23rd employee, and I think at our very height, we had 25 people eight architects and a bunch of support staff. So uh, cranking out a lot of golf courses. Um, and I think they were all pretty solid. Uh, they amenitized real estate. They're, they did their job to add value to a booming housing market. A house on an Arnold Palmer golf course was worth three or four X than a house on um, either not on a golf course or on a non-name golf course, if you will. So it was, you know, we were going around the country adding value and building a lot of golf courses. Um, but again, looking looking back at that, those were some unsustainable times. I doubt we'll ever, you know, kind of be in the thick of it like that again. And I, and to be quite frank with you, I hope that we aren't. I hope that we don't scale up that big again because um, it's it's almost impossible to design a golf course to kind of that high level of detail unless you're on site more. You know, I, I, I try to keep track of the days I'm on site for each project. And, you know, now I'm pushing 80 to 100 days on on each project. And I and working on those details, getting on equipment, um, being a part of the construction team, I think that helps take a golf course to the next level. But if you're doing 16 courses a year, then you're you're not able to do that. A follow-up, you know, just to that point about 
so much of the Palmer catalog beginning in the 1970s is really, as you said, to support residential developments. It's kind of, and I'm going to, this is going to be me. I don't want to say that you, this represents your view, but it's kind of astonishing out of all the, I don't know, maybe hundreds of golf courses that the firm designed. There's so few that ever cracked any kind of best of list, you know, top 100, top this, top that, you know, best in states maybe. But for the output, there's, it's really a remarkably underachieving, uh, portfolio from a design standpoint and i know that sounds harsh but it's just it's just true and so now you're i i i think there's a lot of respect for what you're doing is to try to move out of that mode and obviously a lot of it's out of necessity and for financial reasons there's just not a lot of those jobs but here's my question you do. You did have a, a recent um, affiliation with a, a big residential project at Lakewood National. How did you approach that? Working with Leonard Homes, a big home developer, and it's it's not an ideal routing. It's routed around lakes. It looks like an old, just on paper, it looks like an old classic residential development course. But it looks like there's a lot of interesting detail in the actual whole corridors. So how, what has been your approach? And I know Brandon's the lead on that, but how, what's your approach in sort of like dipping your foot back into that residential model? And how do you make that model different than all the previous kind of Palmer model courses that were built in the 80s and 90s? Yeah, well, it's your, anytime you do a residential golf course, you're handicapped and what you can bring to to bear in the form of golf course rankings and i think you know out of all the golf courses in our portfolio and we have around 300 almost all of those are exclusively development and if you look at the top 100 list i can only think of one in that in that list that is a development golf course i mean almost everything else is is core golf or some hybrid of it where the real estate is just a non-factor. And the only course I could think of that kind of breaks that rule is Harbortown, but the houses really aren't that present or prevalent there. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, even taking on residential golf, you're almost conceding that you're not going to have a top 100 golf course. But what we do believe is that you can do um, worthwhile golf inside of those corridors, and it's a matter of of moving dirt in the right way. And you know, may, maybe the approach in the past was to move a million yards of dirt and do it uniformly across all 18 holes in the form of creating containment golf and chocolate drop moundings and the, kind of this repetitious shaping. Um, we're now, we're starting to, you know, get involved in the routing and so, say, you know, we're not going to do this development unless we can have parallel golf holes. We're not going to work with you on this particular residential development on the golf course, unless we can move some copious amounts of earth and select places that blend their way through the entire development, through the housing pads, to the roads and start to be more believable. So you start to think, more on a macro level. And I think those are some things that Brandon tried to do there at Lakewood, uh, as well as being on site. That was right down the road. It was about an hour and a half drive. He was there, you know, hundred plus days on site, um, had some good shaping talent out there. And I think we were able to make that golf course maybe a little bit different for those reasons. 
Um, I, I don't know if it'll be a top 100 golf course. It was awarded a, a web.com tour event, but you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's a challenge to make top 100 golf on, on residential courses. And I really defy anybody to, to, to say otherwise, but, uh, th- there are some things that you can do and that we are actively doing to, make it as good of a golf experience that you can within the the limitations that you're automatically saddled with with any residential golf course development. I know you can't speak to this directly because you weren't there, but do you get the impression that that you know having having highly ranked and uh, kind of world class golf courses was just not high on the the company's list during that period, you know the late seventies, eighties, nineties? You know, the company gets a company gets to such a size where they can't really justify sometimes like taking on projects that aren't going to support the the entire system. You know, and you get like I guess you get locked into this uh, business model where, you know, you're just working in conjunction with, with home developers and it just kind of perpetuates itself and you lose the, even the desire to try to do something incredible. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, it, it's hard when you're making that much money i think to uh to say that you're doing things the wrong way um and you know we had a real niche a real sweet spot in the in the 90s um doing a lot of golf courses we're getting a lot of positive feedback from the people that paid the freight the people that were joining our clubs that were going out and playing our golf courses and who's to say that they're wrong so i (laughs) I, I can say when Band or Pacific Dunes came on the scene, and I saw that thing on the cover of Lynx magazine for the first time. That was another one of those moments in my career. I was like, "Wow, that's that's different, and that's something that um, that I'd like to be a part of." Creating a golf course like that. So, and it was hard to be all things to all people to continue to design development golf courses, but also have the talent and have a client that would take a chance on you to design something on a site like uh, the Bandon Dunes property. But I think that's something that that we'd love the chance to do. I think Castle Stewart might be that first opportunity. But, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. But we're just aching for the chance to show the world that we can, we can do work um, uh, kind of in that uh, style. You, you know, in your profession – in the olden days, and I say the olden days, I mean the old days of the the Palmer Design Company, I'm imagining the phone rang and somebody picked up and then they passed it through and you, the somebody decided, Ed decided whether, you know, it was worth their time to get on board with this uh, development or not. You know, the phone rang and you answered it. Uh, but now the game's different. It's a hustle. You've got to go out and try to find business. Like you just said, you'd love to find some kind of great Bandon-esque property to show what you can do. What kind of phone calls are you getting these days? What is, I mean, because it's an interesting situation that you're in. It's kind of unique. You have this, the greatest brand name in golf behind you. you. The company's been around forever, and yet you're taking it kind of in a new direction with a new business model, a slimmed down, probably more interesting version of design. Um, but you're not getting those same phone calls that they got 25 years ago. So who does call you on the phone and how does it work for you now to go ahead and go out and get those jobs? Yeah, I think it's mainly connections, you know, like the project, uh, typically we're asked to go back in on our portfolio of 
portfolio of golf courses and update them. You know, infrastructure over time breaks down on golf courses and they need to reinvest. So there's, you know, the, our phone rings like, hey, we need to get get you back here. We're going to, you know, redo the irrigation system or, you know, we need to redo the bunkers. So that opens up the door to a conversation. It's like, okay, you can put this thing back exactly like it is, or we can, you know, we can show you a, a different path to maybe make the same level of investment, but create a better golf course uh, in the process. So that's that's one common call that we'll receive. Uh, another call, you know, I'm just thinking about the course that we recently completed out in um, in Southern California, Satakoi Country Club. And we had a connection through a, f- a friend of mine at a management company, and he was helping some clients out of New York look at some different properties on the West Coast to to buy, invest in, uh, rebuild, reinvent them, and remarket them. So the, in, in the case of Satikoy, it was a golf course that we had no previous involvement in. It was an old uh, Billy Bell um, or William F. Bell um, Billy Bell Jr.'s son. Junior. Yeah. Uh-huh. So the kind of there was this George Thomas lineage where Satikoy Country Club was this nine hole facility kind of down on the valley floor. And then they moved in the sixties, they've moved the club's location. William F. Bell designed an eighteen hole golf course. Uh, it's it's been successful up until the past fifteen years. Uh, or I'd say ten years after the downturn. So there was a reinvestment. They called us and said, Hey, we'd love to um, have your technical services on this golf course. Not so much your name, um, although we have, did evolve to that. Um, it, it's hard for people to pass up on that the opportunity to mark, market Mr. Palmer's name when we're involved. But uh, initially, they were looking for for the technical expertise to, to do a, a turnaround on the golf course. So we helped them out with that. And then there are all these other projects that I think I touched on earlier with uh, people that want golf, but they don't quite have enough land for it. And then we we get calls internationally, um, you know, like the the project down in Uruguay or the the one in Brazil. You know, the Palmer brand is still strong overseas. And so that's that's where most of our new work comes from um, is is overseas and domestically is pretty much uh, renovation, although there are a few one-offs. We are going to do a second golf course with Lennar on the same property um, that should start next month. Okay. Going back to, so on this topic, going back to the course in Uruguay, La, uh, La Piedras, if you look at pictures of that course, the nine holes you built there, it's it's really different than anything that you would expect to come out of the, the Palmer company uh, based on based on past evidence, the bunkering is really awesome. Very thick-lipped, very chunky. Looks like there's a lot of beautiful ground movement. The Satakoi Club, if you look at pictures of that, which I've seen, uh, the bunkering is incredible. There's a lot of movement, a lot of great contour. It's so These projects are so interesting, and a lot of it is because you're working with great uh, shapers, independent contractors like Brett Hochstein, and you use Jeff Bradley on a project, uh, Jeff Stein, guys who are really, really talented. And that that going that route, that design, kind of in the design build mode, it, it really cuts against the historical way the company operated. So uh, to just talk about that decision to, to to move that your company and your design in that direction. Yeah, well, it's hard. The to- results, because the results <laughs> seem to look be outstanding. 
Yeah, it was a point of disagreement between uh, a previous, uh, you know, co-worker uh, of mine of how we needed to go about uh, making our golf courses better. You know, Um, I I tended to think, hey, the the guys that are turning out these top 100 golf courses, they continue to work with uh, kind of kind of the same guys um, and, and getting to know Mr. Core over the years. I mean, it's just been such a treat getting to spend time with him, but just how he operates and get to pick his brain on on their process. You know, I asked him, like, what would it be like for you to, to work with a large golf course contractor that you've never worked with? He said, well, it would be like playing the Masters with someone else's golf clubs. He said, I'm just not interested in doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so that that resonated with me um and i had conversations uh again with some co-workers here back at uh, the arnold palmer shop and like hey this is this is the way i think we we should at least explore going and i was given permission to do that i reached out to to jeff bradley and said man i'd love to work with you we've got the site down in the panhandle if you've uh if you've got any slack in your schedule and he happened to have some slack at the time so he came down and looked at it um although that project didn't move forward that was kind of the first step down that that road of design build but since then you know the project you mentioned down in uruguay las piedras jeff stein was on site there and it was it was just so cool to be able to say you know what i I, strategically this bunker really needs to go in this place let's i just want to turn you loose in this area it needs to be you know say kind of in this general location, but I want you to run with it. I want to give you this artistic license to make it beautiful, um, you know, get off the machine and take a look at it from where you're hitting the shot and different vantage points. Not that I had to tell Jeff these, giving give these tips because he, they, you know, these guys come with, with a good design. They've seen some of the finest golf courses in the world. So, you know, I, I don't, you know, my desire at the end of the day is, to have the best product it doesn't have to be all about arnold palmer it's not an ego thing for me to say well i made all the decisions i I want it to be a team effort and i want the golf course to succeed uh aesthetically and uh playability wise as well so uh, to me it's it's not about ego and credit it's about bringing people in giving them artistic license and just turning them loose and do what they're talented at. I I know putting myself in their shoes when I was trying to break into the business, I would have appreciated that, uh, that opportunity. So it seems to be well-received. I mean, I I think you're speaking to that in the pictures that you've seen of these particular bunkers, these particular golf on these golf courses and just what what we can achieve by working in tandem with some guys that are real artists in the field. But that's not to say that we've completely um, turned away from larger golf course con- contractors because that's that's still something that you know to do a lot of the heavy lifting and some of the shaping and the, obviously the drainage and the irrigation work. Um, you know, even even the you know Gil Hands and and Bill Core um, enlist the services as of of the larger contractors to to help Correct. do that heavy lifting. So, you know, mm-hmm. we're we're kind of in a hybrid model. We're we're continue to get closer towards the design build model, but um I, I would say so far it's it's manifesting itself that decision is showing up on our golf courses by the the way they look and hopefully it's something that's 
seems like it's resonating with you. Hopefully, um, it is with other people who've either seen the properties online or, or hopefully gone out and played them. Yeah, and in your dealings with people in the golf industry, is is there any what's the what's the reaction been? You know, because you're I keep I don't mean to keep harping on this, but you know, your the name of your company is so well established, and it, it does represent a style of of golf course and and architectural operations going back decades. And then they see you know some of your work, and you're much more uh, slim down and sleek. What's the reception been like? Is, has it been hard to change people's perceptions of what your company does? It, it, it is difficult. It just depends on who you're talking to. Like I, I feel like there's some writers out there that no matter what you put in front of them, they're, they're going to have their preconceived notions. Or they're just not going to give you the time of day. They, they've got too, too many other things that are on their radar. You know, I, I'm a fan of, of Jeff Shackelford and his blog. Um, he's taken some aggressive angles at some of our work. I've reached out to him on several occasions and said, hey, man, I, you know, I'd appreciate you taking a fresh look at our golf courses. And to my knowledge, he hasn't. Um, he hasn't taken the opportunity to, um, to do that. It's disappointing, but uh, you, know, you, <laughs> you, can't, you can't force someone to do something they, they just don't want to do. But uh, to, to other people's credit, they've gone out. I, I talked with Ron Whitney, came out to Shingle Creek the other day, and I showed him around the golf course. And he looked at it with a fresh set of eyes and said, wow, this is, this is different. This is, this is different in a good way. And you know, he, he wanted an explanation of, of kind of how we got there. And, um, and I've just, So he had a good reaction to Shingle Creek? Yeah, he, was, he, he wasn't sure that they were USGA-style greens. I'm, I assured him that they were. He's like, man, that's that's really hard to build a USGA green with those kind of roll offs on the edges. I'm like, yeah, it was a challenge, but uh, you know, we, we absolutely had to have that green construction method here. But we wanted them to feel like push up greens, so you know, we took a lot of extra uh, time when we were building the wells to make sure we were rolling the rolling the sides off and blending the contours in. And it was that was a lot of additional work, but I think the the product is, is much more beautiful and, and, um, and more fun to play. And certainly, uh, you know, fits into that landscape and kind of this uh, kind of golden age uh, look that we were trying to go for there. Right. So Shingle Creek is located in, I guess it's kind of south central Orlando. And it was built around 2001, 2002 by, for, for um, what is it, Rosen Hotels? Is Correct. that still the... Yeah, and it was basically just like it, it would be the equivalent of if you were just building like a golf course in the parking lot of the world's largest shopping mall. I mean, it was just a clear cut area with you know lakes, and the holes are on flat ground surrounding this central hotel. And David Harmon was the architect, the late David Harmon, who mm-hmm. was capable of some some pretty good work. Right. Um, and this was just it just had a really weird uh, aesthetic to it, kind of this Art Deco. There was no consistency to the bunkering style the the greens were just kind of like these platform pedestal things built up some strange mounding um and you went in and your company went in and and rebunkered it uh read cored out and read all the greens and you added three new holes lost a couple holes as well so it, i i can't wait to see it i i've seen pictures it looks great and 
you're as you said you kind of like went with a golden age motif do you think that kind of motif is is the best way to approach a property like that that really doesn't offer anything from the land in itself it's flat and you have to you know deal with a lack of intrinsic qualities yeah i think in the case of shingle creek it was uh it, it was the right move uh the resort golf has a particular flavor to it and this this one was kind of right in that sweet spot and being in orlando i just like there's there's 20- what kind of flavor is that just conventioners <laughs> yeah pretty much i mean like- it kind of looks harder than it plays there's a lot of bunkering kind of filling there's a lot of bunkers just kind of filling up a lot of dead space this place had huge corridors technically it would be considered a core golf course um so i I think there was an effort there by the original architect to just put a lot of eye candy out there with with bunkers that really didn't come into play but they did uh did make the golf course feel like it was maybe a little bit more difficult than it was i mean the theory from the hotelier was to to get people around that golf course, I think, as quickly as possible. Um, and they've got a great hotel there, a great food and beverage operation. But uh, when they called us in uh, to renovate the golf course, and the catalyst for the renovation was a hotel expansion, they needed to take three holes down and, and add three holes on, on an adjacent property. So along with that flip of the golf course, we went back in and reshaped all the greens complexes and rebunkered it and decided on you know, kind of you know, a few template greens and a, and a golden age feel, if you will, to differentiate it from a lot of the other uh, resort golf courses here in town. And I, I think it stands out for, for that reason alone. When it comes to designing golf courses on featureless properties like that, you just talked about one, one approach. Do you have a, a philosophy or a guiding principle on how to design green greens and green contours? You talked a minute, you just talked about, the how you were able to manipulate the USGA model of green around the shoulders and roll-offs. But, you know, when you have to, when you're not working off a natural green site and you have to build everything basically out of your imagination, is there a guiding principle or a philosophy you have on how far you can push it or how you're going to approach the the shaping of the contours? Yeah, I think it all starts with a conversation with the client to try to figure out you know how many rounds they want to do, what their clientele is, and you start to hone in on kind of the style of the greens. You know, figuring out what what level of maintenance. You know, if they if the members expect the greens to roll at a fourteen every day, it's it's hard to do any interesting contours. So you know, our job as architects is to try to help educate the clients that you can have an interesting set of greens um, that roll at a ten that have this effective speed of something maybe at 11 or 12 because we're putting some really interesting contours in the greens. And a lot of those buy into it, especially when they realize that they're making their maintenance operations uh, a little bit easier because they don't have to stress the grass out every day um, by by mowing them so low and, and rolling them every day. Uh, they, they tend to buy into the, you know, what we're selling as far as like, Hey, let's build a really interesting set of contours on a set of greens that stem around 10 and something that really ties into the landscape. You know, you're going to be able to create something much more beautiful and flowing and take contours all the way through a green and into a surrounding bunker complex. If you have the freedom to, 
to really get get some bold contours inside of the green complex. But you can only do that if you know in advance that they're not going to, you know, bikini wax the greens. You had a, a nice anecdote in your Golf Club Atlas interview about you were you're talking about Augusta National with Arnold Palmer and about how severely the greens were contoured. And I think you said, mentioned something about how fun it must have been. And he said, there's, when you're playing those golf courses in the Masters, it's anything but fun. And the moral of the story, I think, as you relate it, was his message to you as a designer was, you know, keep that in mind. Don't go too far with your green contours. You know, keep, keep your customer in mind. But as you get farther and farther away from that moment and more and more uh, taking the company in the new direction that it is, do you find yourself wanting to push the envelope a little bit more with your green shapes? Well, you know, it, it's almost this ebb and flow when it comes to green contours. You know, uh, we get a lot of comments from Shingle Creek. Uh, some people that were familiar with the old set of greens and loved <laughs> loved the quote-unquote subtlety of the previous set of greens didn't like what we had done out there. And, you know, that, I, I just kept thinking about Alistair McKenzie's lines. Like, man, I... If, if everybody likes the golf course, then I've obviously screwed up in some way. Mm-hmm. So, so I tried to take heart in that. But uh, that, that probably backed me off a little bit. I was like, you know what? We probably need to tone down the next set of greens. I think Naples Lakes. Um, I can't speak to other architects, but I can only imagine that their next job is probably a reaction to their previous job. You're always trying to find that sweet spot, but also adapt right. that to the client. So, you know, it's, it's an ebb and a flow. Um, but I... If, if I had to settle on any particular philosophy, you know, Mr. Palmer certainly wanted his golf courses to be fun and playable, and that's kind of what our reputation is. And I don't think there's any way to, to steer um, a, away from that reputation. But I think we can, through kind of a initial conversations and an educational process with the membership and the superintendent, to kind of agree in the beginning. It's like we can have – a fun, interesting set of greens, but you know we need the freedom on the front end to design some interesting contours, but also the understanding that they're not going to be maintained, um, you know, at a really high rate of speed. And we think day day in and day out, that's a more sustainable way to to design greens and clubs for to and for clubs to succeed. Well, let me ask you one more time about Arnold Palmer. You mentioned that you know you, most of the things you learned from him were not related to golf design is there anything that you recall now that he spoke to you about golf design that you do carry with you oh absolutely i mean most of them were overarching principles of it being fun and playable for everyone um he just he was so great and he was such a great player architect to work for and that he gave you a lot of creative license. Maybe that's why I feel so comfortable turning over um, the reins when it comes to a particular bunker or design feature to some of the um, shaping specialists that we work with because he gave me the same courtesy, and I, I appreciated that. He gave all of his architects that courtesy. I think that resulted in a very diverse portfolio for that reason because he gave people that freedom and just gave them some guiding principles but as far as any like particular comments maybe he made in the field, I, I know, um, you know, doing a walkthrough up at Wexford Plantation, 
there was a particular green that was running away from us a little bit and it was about 120 yards and the pin was in the back and he was like, like you know what, I, I can't really see that, that pin position like I want to as a player. Um, let's be cognizant in the future of, you know, if we're going to have a, have a pinnable area, make sure it's not running away from you like that from, from uh, kind of the main thoroughfare where people are playing the golf hole. So he seemed to have comments when it when he got really specific. It was more from his eye as a player, because he'd seen and played so many. Obviously, played so many golf courses in a, in a tournament setting that uh, he knew what he liked and what he didn't like. He he was not a fan of any blind hazards, and that's something that I, I tend to still agree with, especially when it comes to water. But uh, every now and then, a bunker being hidden is okay but uh, there were really no hard hard and fast rules for the right, most part right. with with work with him and i think that was what was so great um and that's probably what kept me going and kept me so interested and engaged is um, being able to to put a, a little piece of myself in some of the work that uh that i did for him and i imagine you don't have a problem occasionally running a green away from the line of play now occasionally it's it's i think it's fine <laughs> yeah there, there, I asked, I, there's some go good ahead, golf courses that uh that break that rule you know one of his favorites was oakmont you look at the first green and you gotta yep. land the ball 30 yards short of the green to to make sure it holds the reason i asked that is because I, I did want to sort of get into his mentality as a designer tour pros and high high accomplished players i think have a a difficult time sometimes uh, breaking out of that mindset of how they see a golf course because, you know, they envision a certain types of shots. Um, Bay Hill has been altered so, so many times. We talk about how Augusta National has morphed over the years and often in response to the tour player and the, the Masters tournament play. And Bay Hills was kind of a, a little bit of a Petri dish for how to address the professional game and you know mr palmer over the years initiated a number of changes to that golf course mostly through bunkering and and green surrounds and things like that how how is bay hill going to proceed going forward are, are you charged in any way with figuring out how that's going to exist as a tournament pga tour tournament course yeah i, I think the last major remodel we did was in 2009 um and that was that was kind of a high water mark for the golf course i doubt that we'll see any significant changes uh from that point and merely for, you know, for, or solely from the standpoint of all right this is kind of how mr palmer left it this is he he perfected it and this is how he wanted it um and 2009 was it was a pretty big departure uh from the previous design and how the the golf course played. Uh, we introduced a lot of, you know, took out some bunkers, introduced a lot of short grass, and you know, the theory was there that the best players in the world are going to have a more of a challenge because they've got a there's indecision over those shots around the greens off the short grass because of all the different options. But a higher handicap player, you know, this is a, a course that does seventy thousand rounds a year. How can we? make the game a little bit easier or how can we serve two masters? You know, how can we make that, that game easier for the members? Well, it's the very same feature, right? Two needs, 
two different needs, but one deed. The deed is adding that uh, that short grass around the greens, so a high handicap player, you know, if they take their medicine, um, they can bump it on the green with a putter or a hybrid. And you know, the worst they're going to make from there is a three. But the best players in the world, they can get a little greedy with it and try to nip it and you know get it really close. And if if they miss it just a little bit, it can come right back at their feet. So. That was probably the, one of the biggest changes uh, back in '09. But to answer your question, you know, going forward, how do we how do we curate Bay Hill now that Mr. Palmer's not here to give us instruction? You know, I've worked with him for 20 years, so I I, I feel like I know you know if there are any changes that we need to make to the golf course because of technological advancements. Um, I, I feel like I can speak to that kind of what what he would do. But I, I just don't really foresee um, significant changes to Bay Hill <laughs> unless the, the ball just continues to go further and further. Um, but they're, they're already hitting it you know, over a bunker that we did in 2009 that was a 290-yard carry. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we, we did add a little bit of uh, tee space to that hole um, this summer. We added another 15 yards to that. So now that bunker is a 305 carry. But uh, Rory should still have no problem with that unless it's into the wind. Yeah, no, when he's charged up on a Sunday and got the adrenaline going, I'm not sure you can put a bunker out there far enough. That was crazy, man. He hit one so far last year. I mean, it measured at 383. And granted, the, the golf course is firmed up during the tournament. They turn the irrigation off and the rough has grown up. So when the ball hits, it runs out. But you know, he had to carry that thing 340 to to for it to you know go another 43 yards, and he had lob wedge into a 470 yard par four. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so it, it, you just it, it begins to be absurd as far as how far they're hitting it, and what you can even do as an architect to try to combat that. Right. Are, are you are you happy that you only have to worry about this one week a year at Bay Hill, where you really aren't? as you said, aren't really doing anything right now. Are you, are you happy that you don't have to confront that problem very often? Or is there part of you that says, yeah, I'd like to try to design or set up a golf course with a PGA tour player in mind or PGA tour tournament. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, we're still, we still have tournaments that host PGA tour events. Um, TPC at twin cities. We're doing a renovation there. Brandon's working on it currently. Um, they're moving the, the 3M they're having a new 3M PGA Tour event there in Minneapolis n- next year, and that that was that's the task, right? Is how do we make this golf course that already plays something like 20 under for three days for the Senior Tour? How are we gonna, you know, make this where it's just not not a complete cakewalk for the PGA Tour for four days and have all these scoring records? So that's one of the the things that Brandon's working on with Steve Winslow from the Tour and. And Tom Lehman, who was one of the original uh, co-consultants on that golf course, is, is how, do, how do we make this uh, you know tougher, you know, and, and not a complete pushover for for the tour next year without completely ignoring the needs of the golf course the rest of the year? So yeah, I mean, we still like to put on that hat when when uh, when we're needed to try to figure out where those bunkers go. But I will say, with the advent of you know, big data in golf and shot link, it's become much more easier to try to to crack that nut and you know solve that puzzle of um, how to 
how to challenge the world's best players because they have tendencies and those tendencies show up in patterns on shot link and you can you can start to really efficiently um you know renovate a golf course in a way where the hazards that you're putting out there are meaningful at that level (laughs) they Golf Digest had a feature in the current issue. It's an interview with Jason Day, and the interviewer actually does a really good job with the questions and asked him, you know, what do you think that the ball should be rolled back? This was essentially the question. And, you know, is, would that be helpful? How, do, how would you react to that? And he said, if Jason Day said, if a tournament did that, you know, if the Masters introduced a tournament ball, we'd still all go and play it. But then he, you know, he basically said he, he didn't like the idea and then he kind of switched gears and and blamed the problem on uh, architects making golf courses like <laughs> too long and too difficult. And he said the answer is, and this is a quote. He said, "Be a better architect." I was like, I don't quite logically that doesn't quite make sense. Yeah, I'm trying to look for maybe some kernel of truth in that. Um, I, I, I will say it. It was interesting looking at the leaderboard at Bay Hill this year. It was particularly good for some reason i was trying to figure out why i mean picking up on some type of pattern but the rough was just so thick this year um that a lot of players even on some really long holes were hitting long irons off the tee i was like okay well you know the bomb and gouge theory may go out the window if the rough is so thick and the and if you make the fairways firm enough where if you hit them with a long iron that they're going to effectively roll out to like you know maybe 260 270 yards so instead of having a sandwich into the green maybe they're hitting some longer irons i think that's always the question as an architect for you know if you're working on a a tour venue is how do you put those longer clubs in their hands to really define the best golfer who's hitting the ball best that week and uh this this may sound pretty countercultural, but uh i I think rough could be part of that part of that um, equation again trying to read into jason day's comments if you know you gotta assume he knows what he's talking about on some level maybe on a surface level it doesn't make a whole lot of sense it almost makes it seem like they had to create you know a new golf ball to keep up with all these long courses that you guys were designing rather than courses being extended because of the golf balls flying so far yeah you know mr palmer was always an advocate i don't say always but for as long as i can remember remember rolling the ball back even before it became kind of the the go-to answer because he saw the the downside out of what distance can do to all the existing golf courses out there, you know, becoming somewhat irrelevant, but also the golf courses of the future, just how much land they would continue to need to be relevant. Um, we, we were working with a client up in West Virginia, and he was adamant that his golf course be over 8,000 yards. It, it's 8,042 yards, to be precise. He wanted it to come in exactly at that number, and he wasn't very specific as why. But... Uh, it's like you can't it's it's almost impossible as an architect to design it, it you know an interesting short par four a drop shot par three or reachable par five when you're trying to hit these numbers these preconceived numbers because a client thinks that it has to be that far to be relevant because of the the distances these players are hitting it and it it can all be traced back to the golf ball anyway i, I won't i won't go on a rant but no, I know, I know. Well, <laughs> what? It's it's an unenviable position to be in as an architect. I think unless you, your position is only 
that you're not going to care about it. You know, you're just going to go out, take the piece of land in front of you. Hopefully you have a good client who's not telling you to build an 8,200 yard golf course, but just take the land and, and build the best holes and not worry about what the length is not be concerned about who's going to play it. You know, maybe not even be concerned about what the par is, you know, yeah. just fit the, fit the holes on the golf course. Yeah. Is well, that, they, I was, I was going to mention Trinity forest and what bill core did that or there. Everybody's like, well, are you going to make it longer? Or are you going to do this? You can do that. He's like, no, I'm going to make it shorter and wider. <laughs> and genius. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he just went 180 degrees. Um, and, and if you watch the tournament the first day or two, there was no wind and people were lighting it up and there, there was probably some teeth gnashing going on by the tours. Like, man, we're about to have another scoring record fall. But then the wind came up. Things dried out a little bit. And it became a much more um, challenging golf course. And they started to push the envelope with where the pins were going. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you don't need distance um, to challenge the world's best. It's just a matter of of design, you know, golf course design and shorter and wider. Good. That's a, at least in the case of Trinity forest, that wasn't an embarrassment by, by any standards. Uh, I think it showed how that type of setup could be successful. So. Yeah. And there's a lot of scoring differential too. That that's kind of a, a good indication of a, of a, if a golf course is effective, if you've got a ra- a broad range of scores, I always look in, you know, a leaderboard. And if you've got 20 guys within eight shots of the lead or whatever, you know, that, that golf course isn't testing them, you know, but at a a course like Trinity forest, some guys are going to play great. Some guys are going to like handle the conditions and that's what you want. You want it to be difficult if you're not really good that week. And if you are really good that week, you can score on it, you know, you'd be in contention. Yeah. That's, it was an interesting case study watching that play out. I was, I was particular, I don't watch a whole lot of uh, golf on TV anymore, but uh, I was particularly uh, tuned in with that one. Are there any conversations in golf regarding like how we go forward, especially as it relates to golf courses that you think are particularly important to have right now? And how do we approach these subjects? How do we, how do we uh, change the the bombing mentality, the, the distance mentality, the, the lush green conditions mentality. And is there anything that you can do as an architect to nudge those conversations along? Well, I, I can only think of, you know, anecdotally about what we're doing on our existing golf courses, um, trying to make, you know, uh, just thinking about, um, you know, the project we did out down at Naples Lakes and it kind of fits a, a, a pattern if we have one um, of going back in our golf courses and eliminating a lot of bunkers and putting fairway in its place, we think that makes for, for a much more strategic, interesting golf experience. Taking turf out of play, you know, going going to native areas instead of all of this uh, rough that you have to mow every three days. Um, lowering the maintenance inputs, creating more natural golf course. Uh, you know, that's, that's something that we're actively doing. And, and I think I spoke to, you know, the USGA's efforts to try to move their venues around to places that were embracing that, uh, that brown is beautiful aesthetic. I think we've still got a long way to go, but uh, we're, we're in the first stages of, of changing opinions on what makes a quality golf course. But, uh, yeah, we, we've still got a long way to go. Do you think that, <laughs> this is going to sound so cynical, do you think that, that that's a, a real effort, at least as far as the USGA is concerned? I mean, not like the American Society of Golf Course Architects and the USGA, do you think there's a real concerted effort 
behind promoting brown is beautiful or, or firm turf and less input? Well, I, I think there is. I think the intentions are good. And then you see the blowback from that when the general public pans that look. You're like, oh, that's ugly. And that's not the kind of golf course I want to play. Um, but I, eventually, it's just going to be the the new reality. And I don't know when that's going to happen, but water is not an unlimited resource. You know, courses out on the West Coast, they're they're already dealing with it because it's been forced on them, and they're em- embracing that aesthetic, that look. You know, Satakoy certainly has, um, you know, and and the membership gets it because they're in that environment. But if you come out on the East Coast, it's it's a non-issue. But in, until until it is forced upon people, they're going to want. That uh, that Shangri-La you mentioned, Derek. That uh, they they want that feeling of wellness and prosperity that that green grass brings, of uh, meticulously maintained uh, playing ground. And you know, I think um, I think where the resources are prevalent, at least until they're not, you know, maybe that's the that's okay. Mm-hmm. And that uh, kind of that leads back into that conversation we had about. Uh, why this sport is so great is because every golf course is different. Golf course in the desert has its own uh, appealing characteristics, just like something up in the Northeast or something in Florida. Um, every environment is special. Every golf course, in order to be unique and different and succeed, needs to embrace whatever that natural environment is. That's the biggest difference, I think, between golf course design in the last 20 years and golf course design the previous 50 years is that at some point at least at the top end we started the architects and developers started to say okay here's a piece of land what's the best golf course for it and again like kind of you mentioned earlier a lot of these are like core golf courses or resort or destination places or high-end clubs whereas but there just wasn't much thought given to whether the land should have a golf course on it but you know going back into the 80s and 90s especially it would just stamp out golf courses so that's a positive trend is that there's much more consideration on whether the land can support a golf course than there was 20 25 years ago yeah yeah it's uh it's just a reality of our time right um you just can't go out and uh and, and pick any old site to, to build a golf course. Usually, um, there there are a lot of constraints involved um, and, and permits necessary to, to build a golf course. So you, you need to make sure that you're making the right decisions. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, bunker liners. Can you make an economic case that that you that they should be used? It's all about context. You know, if you're on a pure sand site, you'd uh, you'd be silly uh you'd be flushing money down the toilet to put in bunker liners on a site that that already drains that doesn't need it um on a on a clay site um where the soil is not ideal and you're interested in having bunkers that are going to last if you're interested in preserving a certain quality of sand then bunker liners start to enter the conversation and depending on where you are in the country and what your temperatures are your humidity levels your precipitation there's a bunker liner for every occasion so um my first answer is avoid bunker liners um if they're absolutely necessary it's uh less is more you know up in the pacific northwest we're working at seattle golf club 
And the go-to bunker liner there is building the bunker floor and then putting side on the floor of the bunker, uh, like this grass bunker. And then you spray spray the grass out, kill the grass, and then you cover it up with sand. So the bunker liner is essentially earthen. Um, and that is the best solution for bunkers in the Pacific Northwest. Do you think there's a an industry push to basically and utilize bunker liners in almost every case? Well, I, th- I think it's difficult if you're reinvesting in a golf course and you have the resources to invest in bunker liners and your neighbor just did it and there's a lot of positive feedback from that. Um, not to make that same decision on your golf course. For me, and it's it's a case-by-case basis, I don't feel any pressure to put bunker liners on any of my projects unless it comes from the superintendent. Now, what kind of pressure they may be getting from anyone in the industry, I, I'm not aware of that. Um, but... You know, we want the superintendent to succeed if they're adamant that a bunker liner or a particular turf grass is the right one for them. Who am I as a golf course architect to tell them how to do their job? I want to set them up for success, right? So I'm going to defer to them in a lot of cases because after we're gone, that superintendent is going to be stuck with that golf course. What's the best modern golf course you've seen? Pacific Dunes. You're not the first first uh, architect I've had on this show to say that. What do you like about Pacific Dunes the yeah, most? I mean, I feel like a traitor for saying that, right? I'm <laughs> why? Why? Why well, do you feel that way? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I I suppose the company line would be to pick one of your own projects. Um, well, that I would have precluded you from doing that. <laughs> So, but yeah, so I mean, feel I, free to, to go a different direction. Trying, trying to be transparent. But yeah, I mean, it was it was a golf course that, I, again, I'd seen it on the cover of Lynx Magazine, knew in an instant that I had to get there and check check it out. What, what is this place all about? Because it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. Um, because at the heart of it, even more than being a golf course architect, I'm a golfer. And I think that mm-hmm. um, I think we're all kindred spirits in, in that regard. And it just, that golf course resonated with, with me on a level that I can't recall any other modern golf course doing, especially when you get out to the fourth tee. Um, I, yeah, coming up that, coming up number three, that ascent into the green. And then from that point on, it's nothing, there's nothing like it. Yeah. It's just, it's a golf course that I've played a dozen times. Um, I go out there every other year with, with a group a group of eight guys we rent a house and stay for three days and play five or six rounds of golf and i never grow tired of playing it um and i feel like as an architect i'm always learning something new um as a fan of alistair mckenzie i see similar similarities between that golf course and my other personal favorite cypress point just in the routing it's, it's just uh yeah, yeah, is there is there one thing that that you take away more than anything else from Pacific Dunes that you, you can use as an architect? I, I think it's using one feature a number of times. You mentioned the third hole, that third green, but if you back up and go all the way to the T, that 
that feature, that ridge, runs all the way through the property. It also serves as the green site for number six. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's another feature, I want to say like uh, the eighth green, perhaps. It goes all the way across the property. And it, But anyway, he, Tom just used that feature. He, he tends to key off these one features and kind of hub out of that feature or play back into it repeatedly. You, you go across the, the flat ground pretty quick, but then you either start or end on these really interesting landforms. So that's something that uh, I think is just really well done in the routing and something as an architect that, you know, when I'm looking at uh, a new piece of ground, looking at the topography, trying to figure out where those those connection points are, where those features need to kind of come back, start and finish uh, at so I think he did a really good job there that's something I've um, picked up on um, pretty quick out there yeah that that's a good point the connection points and I've thought about that too there's something special going on at, at Pacific Dunes about the way holes T's and greens intersect on certain features of, of that site um, it's it's hard to kind of put your finger on but you sense it even the first time that you play it like yeah. you just said yeah, it's a great walk. I mean, even if you didn't have a set of clubs, I mean, it would be a successful uh, kind of way to bring people on a journey through of, of discovery throughout that property. And it's uh, yeah. just really well done. Some of the crossovers, like on paper, wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. A lot of sense, but the walk in between some of the greens and tees is, is so beautiful right. that you, you just don't even. It just doesn't even cross your stream of consciousness. So you would love to work on a site like Pacific Dunes, of course, and you've got a, a good site at Castle Stewart. Once you get started on that, that'll be exciting. But when you when you close your eyes and lay in bed at night and think about design, is there a particular golf course that you have a vision of? It could be a, a, a reboot of an old city course. It could be a, a course up in the mountains. What What's the what's the most exciting prospect to you, short of getting a dunesy seaside site? What do you think about when you imagine like an ideal project for your company right now? Yeah, I mean there are a number of uh, projects. I actually uh, was talking with a golf writer the other day, Adam Shupak, and we were talking about uh, municipal golf courses that could stand a little reinvestment. You know, there's. You know, Shark Park is one, uh, Coronado um, down in San Diego. In San Diego, yeah. yeah. Um, Pacific Grove, I mean, that's that's in a great neighborhood, right? You can't beat the, the location. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so and, you know, those are all pretty similar in that they're coastal California. Um, there's an old Donald Ross here in Jacksonville called Hyde Park. And, Hyde Park, yeah. yeah. Has anything been ever been done there or at least in the last you know 20 years or they've, 30 years they've just never had the money you know and then that's kind of a a blessing and a curse the the blessing is that there's a lot of original donald ross features out there because no one ever had the money to go in and change it into something that they thought was better so uh, so it'd be pretty easy to peel peel a lot of that old maintenance back you know the wear and tear back and probably find some pretty neat original features yeah they're still there it's a good route to really mm-hmm. um Nice piece of property, some majestic oak trees, good topography. Um, it's a short golf course. You're not going to make it over 7,000 yards, I don't think, but uh, you wouldn't want to. I mean, it's no. 
it's uh, just be a, like Bill Coor and go the other way, make it shorter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's a municipal golf course. Uh, yeah, it'd, it'd be great to have an opportunity to go back and you know, work on that. When I lived in Jacksonville for around eight years, when when our office was was in Ponte Vedra, so mm-hmm. uh, I'm still uh, still fond of that that location. Uh, not not necessarily Hyde Park, but uh, just all of Jacksonville. There's some good golf courses around there. So is is that the I guess to kind of finish this up is that the the way forward for Palmer Design as you're operating it now to just kind of take these projects whether it be uh, an old Palmer project like Naples Lakes or uh, get a, another Satakoy uh, do some remodels just kind of continue to do what you're doing hire a great crew be creative be artistic and just keep presenting that putting it out and. And, and if you do that, you'll assume the business will grow and you'll continue to expand and, and be in line for more and more top rate projects. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair assessment. And that's what Brandon and I talk about a lot is executing on a high level, no matter what the budget is, no matter the size of the scope of the project. Eventually, somebody's going to take notice like, wow, they, this was quite a transformation. Look at the before and after of this place, what they were able to do through thoughtful architecture um, on, on this particular project. And, uh, you know, this is really successful. Uh, maybe if they can do this, they can, uh, they, they can do something e- even, even more, even better. So uh, that's, that's what we're focusing on is just one project at a time, giving it all our attention and uh, making it as awesome as we can. Well, you've got things going in a great trajectory right now. Uh, there, there's Thank a lot you, of, there should be a lot of optimism for the future. The golf courses look great. Thank you very much. Well, Thad, it was great talking to you. Thanks for doing this. Uh, it went by fast. It did for me anyway. Yeah. Well, how, how long was that? <laughs> you know, hour, hour 45 or, oh, now, wow, okay. or so. That did yeah. go by fast. All right. Well, great talking to you, Thad. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Derek. Likewise. All right. That was fun. That was Thad Layton and perhaps some poker chips. Was he shuffling poker chips while we were talking? I'm not sure. It sounded like poker chips. Um, I want to make a quick note. We started the conversation talking about Hurricane Michael, and as you know, uh, it touched down in the southeast and in Florida and, and caused an incredible amount of damage and loss of life. And I wanted to be clear, we weren't making light of the situation when we started talking about hurricanes and how they come up through the Gulf and, and so forth. You know, this particular hurricane did a massive amount of destruction and people are hurting from it, so um, did not want to make light of that. This interview really came about because of social media up till about a year ago, I, I don't know that I really knew who Thad Layton was. I wasn't really paying it that close of attention to what Ar- Arnold Palmer course design was doing. I was very familiar with their past work. I didn't think that I needed to keep tabs on them. But then uh, on Instagram and Twitter, I started to see some photographs posted about some very interesting work at Satakoy Club in Naples Lakes. And it didn't look like anything that I would expect to come out of the Palmer design offices, nothing like I'd seen before beautiful uh, renditions of bunkering and and contouring and it it just was very evocative those photographs uh, primarily especially the Satakoy Club were posted by uh, shaper Brett Hochstein there and it it just made me curious so I looked into it and and very surprised to discover that Thad Layton was moving Palmer design away from the large residential kind of industrial model of design and and construction that the company had been really known for, which was their bread and butter, and more into this design build mode. So 
thanks to social media and, and those photographs that that piqued my curiosity, I looked into it and I was able to have a, what I think was a really great conversation with Thad and an opportunity for him to explain what Palmer Design is doing and, and how he's trying to, he and Brandon Johnson are trying to reset the direction of Palmer Design. I thought that was a very entertaining and enjoyable conversation with Thad. Thank you, Thad, for joining me. Thank you all for listening. I would like to encourage you to check out some of the past episodes that we've done here at Feed the Ball. Dig into the back catalog a little bit. There's some really good stuff there from their, uh, from the early days, way back in the early days a year ago. But uh, great conversations that, that uh, are, are good to revisit. Obviously, the first one, Jim Ang, which kicked off this whole series. A great talk with Bill Coor. Um, I really liked my talk with Mark Love from uh, he and his brother Davis Love's design firm. Very underrated. Uh, good insights from him. Ron Pritchard was a, a great interview. Uh, Steve Smyers. Uh, particularly fond of our my discussion with uh, Keith Cutton, kind of going digging back into the history of golf course architecture uh, in the dark ages, the quote-unquote dark ages a little bit. So go back and check out some of those past episodes. I think you'll be surprised at the quality of the conversations from these architects that I've uh, been fortunate enough to have come on the show. I want to thank those of you who have given a rating and a review to the podcast recently. I appreciate that. Those of you who haven't, it really helped me out if you go to iTunes or wherever and uh, give it a star rating and leave a comment. You can leave a comment at Feed the Ball. Talk to me there. I'm always available at Feed the Ball on Twitter and Instagram. One more time, I want to thank Thad Layton for coming on the show this episode. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to the Sundogs as usual. And until I'm fortunate to do this again, cheers. But sometimes I feel the pain When the lies come on And the curtain is drawn You gotta believe